Well, well, welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at addiction and recovery, now with less dogma and more bite. This is our Recovery Capital episode, uh, or episode 39, if you're binary. It's been a while, I know. Uh, I've been busy on other people's shows. It was a thrill to be on the Humanize Me podcast and to talk to Bart. He's such an interesting fellow. If you haven't heard that show, by all means, listen. If you're tired of listening to me, listen to some of his other shows. He's got a fascinating story. He's an interesting character. Many things are good recovery capital building things, and he's one of them. It was great to work on the AA Beyond Belief podcast, talking about the AA General Service Conference that just happened in 2018, and the approval of the new pamphlet, The God Word, Agnostics and Atheists in AA. Today, I have some stuff that I am just too excited about to stay on the sidelines, so can we talk? I, I saw some of you at this summer's International Conference of Secular AA in my hometown, Toronto, Canada. I'm still busy with audio, editing the panels and speakers. I found it very hard to do a new content, preparing for that and the aftermath of that, which is great. It was nice to see everybody, but I feel like I never got to talk to anybody. Uh, in the middle of every conversation, there was someone with their hair on fire, some emergency, something that had to be done. I was distracted by starting microphones and, you know, anyway, I've been editing these panels and it's like I'm getting to go to the meetings uh, for the first time. It's really quite pleasant. And if you don't know about those, uh, all of the talks have been uh, cleared for anonymity <laughs> uh, as as best we can, for sure. And you can find them on the ICSA, International Conference of Secular AA, ICSA YouTube page. As we get them up, we'll put them up. And you'll also find them at AA Beyond Belief. Many podcasts are there as well. Uh, thanks to the whole team at AA Beyond Belief, John S. just being one of those. And I've been writing, not so much here, but kind of guest columnists here and there. I've been writing for The Fix, of course. That's important. It's important that we sort of get out there. Let's not create an echo chamber, right? we got to bring the conversation to the street. The idea of this podcast and these blogs that I do are not to compete for your time. I do think that reading and listening is good recovery capital building activities. I do it, and I assume other people benefit from it as well. But I just try to fill gaps, uh, things that need to be said that aren't being heard, people or books that need attention. Uh, those are the things I do. The more and more other people uh, write great blogs, well, I'm just going to link to their blogs. Other people who do great podcasts, I'm just going to link to their podcasts and show up, you know, where needed. It is fall 2018. It is conference season. I will be going to NADAC in Houston uh, October 5th, I fly in on the 4th, but from the 5th to the 8th, I'll be there. And uh, NADAC is the National Association of Treatment, uh, Addiction and Treatment Professionals. I'm doing a presentation on a secular view to 12-step facilitation, still a popular, cost-effective, and evidence-based means of helping people find recovery. Uh, it's a uh, a growing living thing, so it's always improving. And I think a, a secular look at it is a great way to improve it in light of some recent uh, legal problems. Treatment centers and drug courts have gotten into mandating 12-step-based uh, recovery, either go to jail or go to the 12-step meeting. Uh, people have been uh, suing over that. There's a way around that. It shouldn't be the best-kept secret that there's a secular way to have AA. Without superstition, without belief in somebody else's God, 
You can go to AA. You don't have to hold my hand and say a prayer. You can just talk about your problems. I'll tell you about mine. And if you think that's going to help you with your recovery, great. It's certainly going to help mine. So I'm doing that in uh, October, uh, or I did that in October, depending when you're listening to this uh, uh, podcast. Uh, Recently, I just came back from the Recovery Capital Conference of Canada, September 13th and 14th at the Carlu in downtown Toronto. I interviewed some people. We'll be hearing from them. They're the experts. Uh, Rebecca Jessman of the Canadian Centre for Substance Use and Addiction. Gord Gardner, he's the Executive Director of Community Addictions Peer Support Association. Uh, Giuseppe Ganchi, he's the co-host along with Darren and Francis of Talk Recovery Radio in the Vancouver area. I've been a guest on their show. I met Giuseppe at the Anaheim NADAC uh, conference back in 2015. So, you know, it was great to see him again because I feel like I lurk and I follow him on social media all the time. It was great to actually talk with him. He is one of several players who have been involved in creating this conference. He's going to tell you what his motivation was for doing all that. We'll have some music. Heinz is an indie rock band from Madrid, Spain. I saw them at Canadian Music Week at the legendary Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto uh, this year. Uh, Their current album has a song called Soberland. Not a love song, but... The title, I heard it and thought, oh, yeah, I should find a way to put that on a podcast, and today I'm going to do that. What's recovery capital? Recovery, definition from the internet. A return to a normal state of health, mind, or strength. An action or process of regaining possession or control of something stolen or lost. That's recovery, a return to a normal state of health, mind, or strength, something lost that is now found. Capital, its definition is wealth or other asset available or contributing to a particular purpose. Heard in the rooms of peer-to-peer groups is don't wait till you need a meeting until you go to a meeting. And the meaning behind that little bumper sticker slogan, the meetings, the social, educational, the esprit de corps, the recovery capital that we we get from there, we shouldn't wait till we're totally tapped out. Um, it's good to, it's like going to the gym. Don't wait until you have high blood pressure to start jogging. So recovery capital. So having shelter, food, love, social engagement, Walking around money, that's recovery capital. In the Maslow hierarchy of needs, that would be sort of the base level. Then there are higher things like uh, uh, meaning in life, purpose, community service. These are things that uh, come later, I guess. It's like uh, health or wealth. The more you put in, if you manage it properly, the more useful and powerful it becomes. In fact, we might have so much that we are compelled to give some of it away. And uh, it's not necessarily charity, is it? You and I know that. I think recovery capital is transferable. Uh, Some would say, like we uh, touched on, you got to give it away to keep it. I think I agree with that. Uh, Reading, going to meetings, living within my value system, feeling engaged in a life of meaning. These are things that I could put in the box called recovery capital or just long-term recovery. It doesn't need a special name. While early recovery uh, might be more like bridge financing, meaning of life isn't necessarily what you need when uh, you're shaking and jonesing. But in long-term sobriety, do we feel rich or poor in our sobriety? There was a panel. It was called Building Resilience with Recovery Capital at the uh, conference. Do you know Ann Dowsett Johnson? She's the author of uh, Drink, 
the intimate relationship between women and alcohol. Uh, she moderated this panel uh, that was just great. We had someone from a treatment center, someone from a peer-to-peer -peer group, and a PhD candidate, all talking about their own lived experience. There were doctors there, there were researchers there. It was time really well spent. I, I, I would find it hard to believe that even someone without addiction wouldn't find something interesting about this conference. There's th three interviews I'm going to share with you. And then I'm going to finish with um, talking about another place I went to, which was the annual seminar for intergroups and central offices. It goes from city to city every year. It was in Montreal this year. I learned some interesting things. I I'll share this with you. Um, you know how many people in the sort of secular recovery community have felt uh, disenfranchised by AA as a whole, you know, either saying your group isn't a real AA group or you can't be a real alcoholic if you uh, don't need God to get you sober, any of those things. I mean, most people don't feel that way, but anytime you hear those sort of microaggressions or those sort of aggressive discriminatory hostilities, it's it's hard. But did you know that inner groups get the same discriminatory hostilities? Uh, inner groups are told, you're not part of the AA service structure. Inner groups are told, you can't come and sell AA literature at our conference because you're not part of the general service structure. You're a not-for-profit. So intergroups get excluded from AA events in some places. I, I, I heard this and I really felt for them. It is true that intergroups aren't part of the general service structure. That's the upside-down triangle with groups at the high and wide side and then they're GSRs meeting at the district and then funneling down to the area and there are 90 some odd areas in Canada the US and each of them have a delegate that go to the general service conference one week every year in April and then there's the board that uh, and grapevine uh, that sort of do the bidding of the conference uh, throughout the year and then there are uh, sort of uh, committees uh, throughout the year that meet on a quarterly basis with trustees and you know, all this sort of thing. So anyway, that is the general service structure. And the reason that central offices or intergroups aren't part of that is they predate that whole general service structure. Uh, in Philadelphia, in Chicago, uh, maybe even in L.A., there were central offices long before Bill W. had any idea about we should have representation from all of the groups and vent our differences and work out our problems and work together and all that jazz. So they are not part of the general service structure, but they are part of the AA structure. So anyway, it's a long way of saying I really felt empathy for them because uh, we are so tribal uh, you know, it's one 12-step fellowship against another or harm reduction versus abstinence-based or, you know, one style of AA versus another style of AA. It's human nature, I know. We all suffer from stigma uh, as being addicts, alcoholics, even among our own, you know, village of the doomed. We could certainly treat each other better. And I also, but I, I will close with something I got there from uh, Montreal's central office, which used to be an intergroup back when I was an intergroup rep in the mid-70s, uh, living in Montreal. But now uh, Area 87 runs the telephone answering and literature and all of that jazz. And they print their own literature. It's not conference approved, but... One of their books is called Dry Drunkenness, which is kind of like Recovery Capital, said in a different way. It even has an updated doctor's opinion. So I'll share some of that with you. But first, 
I'm going to take, without interruption, I'm going to take you to uh, three uh, different discussions. Uh, one will be with Giuseppe talking about the history of this uh, conference and its future and what motivated it and his thoughts on what's going on. We will hear from uh, Dr. Ray Baker talking a little bit about what is Recovery Capital. We will start off with Gord Gardner from Ottawa. I met him at Issues of Substance. I was there with uh, Diane P. in Calgary last fall. Uh, I met him in Calgary. He uh, did a great presentation with uh, Rebecca from the Canadian Centre of Substance Use and Addiction, and they did a here are the facts and here is the lived experience kind of thing. By the way, um, if this is all hard to follow along, on AA Agnostica, I also did a report for the whole conference, so I got more data there. This is, uh, I guess, uh, sort of the audio version. It's not a repeat of what I wrote there, but it's just some extra stuff. So if you're hearing this and you don't know about that, go there. And if you've already uh, heard or read what I provided over at A Agnostica, uh, this uh, will not be repetitive. So uh, please enjoy responsibly. Hi, this is Rebecca Jessman, Director of Policy for the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction. Hi, it's Gord Garner, the Executive Director of the Community Addiction Peer Support Association, and we're listening to Rebellion, Rebellion Dog, Dog Radio. Radio. You did this great presentation today, which uh, to me is uh, sort of the policy side and the lived experience side. I mean, who came up with this idea of sort of combining these two, get some data out there and bring it to life? Whose idea was that? The combination is something that CCSA has been working on, but I have to give full credit to Gord for having the idea to put us both on the stage. It's a true story as I knocked on the door but somebody opened it and the ideas were not unlike each other and so it was very uh, great over the last couple of years to develop a relationship with the CCSA so that we could get to this point and I, as I said to Rebecca earlier, our message was us co-presenting, that was the message and everything else was the details supporting how that came about and the challenges we both faced. Because to me, it seems like uh, we don't use sort of left brain, right brain talk anymore, but that's the generation I come from. You know, there's this sort of very binary thinking of statistics, and then recovery is abstract. It, like it doesn't fall into a black and white sort of pattern at all, right? So is it hard to measure? Is that a, a challenge for a researcher? Really articulate the problem and really articulate the solution. Anytime you try to articulate a social condition or a health condition, you end up making, to be honest, arbitrary judgments arbitrary anyway. Arbitrary judgments, okay. So it's really about recognizing that there's a story behind all of the numbers. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's right. It isn't just a number, it's a story. Now, in your report, when you did the uh, Canadian survey, that's one of the great things about it. There's some great stats there, but there's some actual dialogue from participants, what they had to say, their barriers were, that sort of thing. Again, was that intentional, or how did that come about? Definitely intentional, because, again, if you don't tell the story behind the numbers, it's hard to... It's hard to bring the numbers to life, and when you're trying to influence policy, you have to give people that story in order to make it real and to have that impact. And that's, I think, what Gordon and I tried to do today was it was to bring the the policy, the dry pieces, to life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, well and, I, and I, for one, find that there's a great deal of life in, in what are sometimes described as the dry pieces because. Those are the, that's the sort of information we need to move things forward as a society that we can't just, uh, oh, I was thinking, and okay, society decides that, that my experience is going to lead us, or that person's experience is going to lead us. So we need data collection, we need research, and then uh, we need to support that by being available and working in, in, in simply in a good-mannered fashion. 
together, knowing there's no simple answers, but we're better off to be together on the problem. And no simple answers. That's one of the most remarkable things. Like we talked about stigma, and you know, there's one side saying, you know, they're now they're stigmatizing people for being anonymous. Get out there, right? And you know, you can't unring a bell, no. right? And you don't know what other people's reactions are going to be to your saying. I used to be a cocaine addict. I used to sell my body for, you know, drugs, right? Now, uh, uh, when do you want me to babysit your kids? There's going to be an impact on that. So, uh, you know, people have to make a personal choice how they want to sort of represent themselves, right? It's not one or the other. But how do you fight stigma when most of it is microaggression? Most of it is we're not even aware of it. We have our biases and we react to our biases without even knowing them. So is it just about talking about it more or can we make a policy that solves stigma? I don't think you can make a policy that solves stigma without addressing it at the micro level too. You have to call people out when you see it. Mm -hmm. And I suppose everyone has to look after their own cultural insensitivity and, and, and take inventory in their own biases. If professionals do that, for instance, that, that will affect uh, the, the care they give. And researchers too, right? You know, one of the tricks of, with research is not allowing your own biases to influence your conclusions, right? And can I put a plug in for influencing the media? How many times, why does every story in the media about the opioid crisis have a picture of an arm with a needle in it? Good. Plug away. <laughs> yeah, because more of that happens, you know, in corporate Canada, corporate America, corporate wherever. It's not a back alley story. That's someone was saying it's what uh, one third of one percent is 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 that sort of Lower East Side kind of story, and the rest of it is the suburbs, uh, the boardrooms. Well, and if, if the, you look the at high the, if you look at the Lower East Side, and you're talking about conditions. I remember back in the day, right? People headed to Vancouver because it didn't get really cold. And so your homeless yeah. was a lot better in Vancouver. It's a port city. Naturally, you've got an environment there that would grow a community of people in active addiction without social stabilities because it's better to be on the streets of Vancouver than the streets of Ottawa or Toronto. It doesn't get as cold. It's that simple. It's not Vancouver's a special place or there's something going on there. If you don't want to talk about climates and influences of, of social settings, that's it. That's the great thing about local intel because uh, to me I thought it was that people had to either stop running or start <laughs> swimming. Uh, uh, no, no. It's that the, too. <laughs> yeah. You know. That is the edge, but it's also where the port is. And, and trust me, some of them got on the boats and went, went the, rest, the rest of the way up the country, right? Yeah. For sure. And I, as a journalist, I read, uh, you know, these uh, academic papers and studies. And, like, I can read the, the introduction, the hypotheses, and I can read the conclusions. And then I can look at the statistical data and go, well, I'll take their word for it, right? But it almost always ends with, more research is needed. Well, I'll ask you, Gord, were you surprised by any of the results of the latest Canadian survey of people in recovery? What came out of that? I was surprised to see we actually had one. Wasn't right. that great? Yeah, you know? wasn't that great. And I was surprised because I'm not an educated person at the depth they went to to make sure it was more than just this uh, somebody reporting, they had a survey, they have ways and techniques to pull data out of there that they can say, oh, this has got a snowball effect, this, you know, the researchers, right? Right. They're, it's more than a questionnaire, it's more than a few people, they're looking for information there that they can say, yeah, no, that's, that's clear data, you know, and, and so it was great. And, and you must have come up with this and go, okay, this is great, but now we really need X, what's X? Well, X is a lot of what we spoke about. It's it's addressing stigma. It's you know the the survey was fantastic in identifying both the system level barriers that mm -hmm. we need to address, and as I said, putting that in a, a survey, so a rigorous survey, 
that when policymakers are asking for evidence, we mm -hmm. can give them the evidence. And when they want the story that brings the evidence to life, that's there in the same package. Yeah, that's right. Uh, what, one of the things I found most remarkable about it is how most people use multiple ways to find their recovery. Like six, I think, was the average. Six or seven, right? And they ranked them, but nobody did one thing, or not, not many people did one thing to get better. In a world that's gotten very tribal, our way is the best way. I, I think, you know, that sh that should tell all of us to, you know, settle let's be, down a bit. Yeah, settle down a bit. Let's can't we all just get along? Huh. And uh, just uh, social media websites. Where can people uh, who get curious about what we've talked about find out more? www.ccsa.ca. Now on Twitter. And uh, Facebook. They just opened Twitter and Facebook pages. Today. Well, you had a Twitter. Yeah, right? no, had sorry. a Twitter, yeah. yeah. and now you're new, on Facebook. New Facebook. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. And so with me, it's recoverydayottawa.ca. It's uh, capsa.ca. And um, we're on Facebook at Recovery Day Ottawa. 6,500 likes. Come and join us. We post information about events. Uh, Recovery Day Ottawa is not an event, it's a year-round thing, and so right. it's Community Addiction Peer Support Association. We also run uh, All People, All Pathways Peer Support Groups, which believes in having publicly available peer support. Well, uh, thanks uh, for everything you did today and everything that led up to it, and thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. This is Dr. Ray Baker, and we are listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. So here we are at the Recovery Capital Toronto uh, Conference. They had it in Vancouver. They've done that a couple years. They're planning on taking it across the country. Uh, so you were at both Vancouver and here? I was, and I was at Vancouver last year. As a matter of fact, I was part of the uh, organizing committee for the first Recovery Capital Conference as we came up with the idea as an alternative to um, what, what we were doing about addictions and being sort of solely focused on the problem, we thought this could begin the process of looking at solutions, things that we know work. Right. I mean, they talk about 12-step recovery. It's, it's a solution-based uh, program, not, you know, and, but sometimes medicine focuses on the problem. Uh, not the solution. Yeah, that's uh, the, you've jumped right into the heart of a big problem, and that <laughs> is uh, the healthcare crisis in North America is simply that: is that we're we're not a health system; we're a disease system. system. Yeah, disease management. We wait until people get really sick, and then we focus on the disease. And often, for chronic diseases, chronic lifestyle diseases, we offer quick fixes without recovery focus without long-term recovery management in the community focus and that's how this whole approach to addiction is different. Uh, weigh in on this. Uh, just uh, th this morning we got a couple of presentations from Simon Fraser University from Harvard about real evidence-based... Like, really good stuff. They're finally starting to study 12-step facilitation and all these things. And, they, and the finding seems to be that those are the things that show long-term permanent care. But am I right in assuming that the treatment... Uh, industry is trying to go more medical, more, uh, you know, professional, and uh, because they, they think that is more evidence-based. They're throwing out the whole sort of Minnesota model for something that seems more professional. So that's a mood or a, a bias, not evidence-based. Am I it, right about that? Well, it's a pendulum swing. Mm -hmm. I, I got started working in addiction medicine in 1980. Six and and the thing that well that's when I became certified by what became the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and back then, addictions hadn't uh, hadn't even come on the radar of psychiatry or the pharmaceutical industry. There was uh, it just didn't look like an area that they could make any money. I think I don't know, but 
the thing that attracted me was that it was so exciting because our conferences were recovery oriented. Mm -hmm. The miracle was all around us and we were seeing people just on fire with recovery. So most of us who worked in the field were people with with a personal history of addiction who were in recovery, highly, highly motivated. And so most of the work we were doing was, back then, was recovery-oriented, recovery-focused, mm-hmm. without, without the strength of the science that John mm-hmm. Kelly from Harvard brought this morning or Julian Summers from Simon Fraser brought. Yeah. And in a way, we were negligent. We, mm-hmm. It was on our watch, we did it, we thought it was obvious to the world that this stuff worked, but we didn't generate the papers, we didn't yeah. put out the science showing that it worked, we just knew it worked, the evidence was around us. But it's You skipped a few steps. We did, and, and it's, it's not all our fault. This is the only chronic disease that affects over 10% of the population. Millions of people get into recovery, and what do they do? They remain anonymous. They remain concealed. Mm -hmm. So the world doesn't know we're out there. Mm -hmm. All the world sees is Vancouver's downtown east side. Mm -hmm. They, They hear about the people dying from opioids. Uh, they they don't know that there are 23 million Americans in recovery or 2 million Canadians mm-hmm. in recovery who are healthy, happy, contributing members of society who don't use a lot of health care resources and who pay their taxes and vote. And that has to change because we, every other chronic disease has an advocacy group. We don't. So, right. so it's partly our fault for not generating the science, but partly the, the fault of the whole recovery community for not making ourselves known. Because we know the solutions, so we, we pull our hair out when we look at these, some of these wacky academic and research type generated solutions for the problem of addiction, and where they have neglected to factor in until recently even mm-hmm. the word recovery. Right, yeah. Yeah. There's always the naysayers, the Lance Dotuses and the, the orange paperists, you know, who have who, an who agenda choose, of their own. Yeah, they choose to suppress mm-hmm. they choose to suppress the growing evidence and when John Kelly this morning mm-hmm. presented the new Cochrane review study on meta analyses of of the effects of 12-step programs and 12-step facilitation therapy, which just blows the, the Dodes arguments and the orange paper arguments and, and the, the, the Stanton Peel arguments mm-hmm. out the right. window. Yeah. The evidence is, if we had that kind of evidence for treatment efficacy for all the other chronic illnesses like heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, we wouldn't be having a debate. I mean, right. everybody yeah. would be jumping on that. It would be malpractice not to prescribe this mm-hmm. treatment. That's the sinister side of this thing. Mm-hmm. So who stands to benefit from the status quo, the status quo or the direction the pendulum yeah. has swung right. towards pharmacological management of addiction? Mm-hmm. Somebody's making a lot of money by keeping... And again, it's partly our fault. Mm -hmm. Partly our fault because I fought for years to have addiction called a disease of the brain. Yeah. Now that we call it a disease of the brain, pharma's taken that and made it a communication strategy to say, like depression, it's a disease of the brain, you need to take medication for life. However, as John Kelly said (laughs) this morning, of course it's a disease of the brain, but you know how to change the brain? By communicating, by socializing, by working the steps by doing all the things that we know work in recovery. If you do SPECT studies or MRI studies or CT scans, guess what? You're going to find anatomical structural changes in the brain based on those behaviors. And these uh, changes that affect the brain you referred to yesterday as part of the, the sort of quiver of recovery capital, different arrows in that quiver. Yeah, recovery capital, as as you know, uh, Joe, you've you're in on this. Recovery capital is such an exciting concept because it refers to all of those traits, those factors that we can bring to bear that make us more likely to be successful in long-term sustained recovery from addiction. There's external recovery capital, like the resources available to me, healthcare resources, addiction. Re- 
resources, recovery resources, and resources like enough money, enough food, shelter. But those are just the bare basics. Mm -hmm. There's many internal resources like my motivation, my coping skills, yeah. my boundary skills, my emotional maturity. And so anybody in recovery who's working on their program at any one time, if you ask them what you're working on, for sure it'll be some component of the recovery capital because recovery capital is not a fixed entity. It's like physical health. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lifetime commitment. It, it, and it's an investment. So yeah. the more you put into it, the better it gets. Mm -hmm. And the better it gets, the higher your recovery capital. A, you're less likely to, to relapse, but mm -hmm. B, you're more happy and healthy and functional in the community. So uh, the, the neat thing is there doesn't seem to be a, a limit to it so that in and long term it's accessible term, to everyone everybody right? you can yeah. listen to podcasts you can read books you can go to meetings it's free can, and for fun you know, yeah right. yeah you don't have to pay for it yeah and yeah uh, ladies and gentlemen I grabbed Ray on his way to the airport <laughs> so I'm gonna let him go but if people uh, do take an interest in the type of work you're doing and the type of messaging you're giving how do they find you I keep telling people that I'm retired, so they probably don't <laughs> fire me, but I, I am writing a book entitled Recovery Medicine, and if you have your way, Joe, I'm, I'm actually going to finish it someday. Yeah. Uh, I'm out in Vancouver. Uh, if anybody does want to talk more about this, I'll just give you my email address. It's healthquest, H-E-A-L-T-H-Q-U-E-S-T, at Shaw, S-H-A-W, dot C-A. Okay, thanks yeah. for being a good sport, Ray. Okay. Talk to you, Joe. You bet. Uh, my name is Giuseppe Ganchi. I am the Director of Community Development for Last Door Recovery Center, which is the organizer of the Recovery Capital Conference, which I am a conference chair for the committee. And uh, if you recognize the voice, he's also one of the hosts of... Uh, Talk Recovery yeah. Radio. Yeah, I wear a few hats. Uh, the co-host of Talk Recovery Radio. I'm also the chair of Recovery Day BC. Yeah. And also chair of Clean, Sober and Proud, which is uh, also yeah. uh, a committee that we have. Yeah, fantastic. So you know a little bit about uh, a variety of uh, underrepresented minorities and marginalized com communities. I spend most of my days with them, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is, had to start with an idea. This is the second year of uh, the Recovery Capital uh, Conference. Uh, last year was Vancouver only. Uh, this year it's Toronto, Vancouver. I heard from the podium that you're thinking Calgary or Winnipeg or uh, adding to it. Yeah, I, with my line of work, I attend several conferences a year. Glassdoor is a sponsor of these addiction conferences mm -hmm. that take place across Canada. Yeah. And, and the one, States. And the States. Yeah, we Nadat. met in the States. Yeah. And one day I just looked up, I was like, is anybody ever going to talk about recovery at these conferences? Yeah. It's a lot of talk about addiction. I thought that's really bizarre because if this crisis is killing people, don't we want to know how to recover from this rather than yeah. just reduce the harm from it? And so we talked about it amongst ourselves that we should organize a recovery conference. And we didn't know what that was going to look like. We didn't want it to be a 12-step conference yeah. um, because that immediately would get uh, put on the side as a conference that is non-evidence-based. Right. So we kind of flirted with the idea for a few years. And then my colleague, uh, Jessica Cooksey, who's an operations manager at Last Door, she came across this uh, conversation about building recovery capital right she did some research on it and it sounded really good yeah and it sounded like this is it like this is the continuation of harm reduction this is something that can probably help us bring everyone together in one room so we decided to have a small get-together that turned into a committee that turned into a two-day conference which was really well received last year yeah. and the conference is to break down the silos of healthcare yeah. that are found in the current system where the abstinence people are here the harm reduction people are here 
the welfare system treatment centers are here yeah. and the private centers are somewhere else. Right. So how do we all get into one room and realize our collective voices together yeah. will help break down this overdose crisis, not just for drugs, but also alcohol right. disorders. It's working. Yeah. People are excited. People are feeling like they're they're learning something. Yeah. And we know it's going to take time. It took 20 years for the harm reduction narrative to take yeah. over North America. And so we know that uh, this is an opportunity for us to help change that narrative where uh, re building recovery capital is all the systems of care working together. Yeah. It's not this works better than that because we really believe, uh, I personally believe, yeah. everything works yeah. when the person is ready makes, and, and not even is ready. Yeah. I say the I person has a freedom of choice. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, like I always well have this an analogy where 15, 20, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. it used to be a, a big book thumper saying, do the steps or die. Yeah. And everybody balked at that. How dare you? Yeah. Now we've gone 180 with it where it's like, do harm reduction or die. Yeah. And us that are in recovery are like, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, we don't, I don't need to be on a lifetime supply of Suboxone. Yeah. And don't tell me I need to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the pendulum's gone the other way. Yeah. So this is our opportunity. Yeah. This is our opportunity to have our lived experiences at the table. Right. Is there still a lot of tribalism? Like, uh, oh, 100%, yeah. Yeah. But it's ending. Yeah. Uh, we really, I think the perfect storm with all of our friends dying, yeah. we're realizing that not working together is what's actually killing people. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when I have people that I know personally that didn't go to rehab because mm -hmm. they couldn't afford rehab yeah. and they didn't want to go on welfare and they didn't want to go on the funded system. Yeah. You know, and fentanyl, yeah, fentanyl killed them. Yeah. But why, how did they get there? Yeah. You know, so it's not just fentanyl and, and um, my belief, the crisis is we're in a treatment crisis. Yeah. More than an overdose crisis. Yeah. I mean, the, to, you know, some people get access to the best treatment centers in 24 hours because they got a credit card. And some people have to go through the gauntlet of services. You know, our physicians that are telling us that we need to do harm reduction uh, with medication, prescription heroin for all opiate addicts, well, their colleagues who are physicians, if they have an opiate disorder, they're going to private treatment. Yeah. That's a two-tiered healthcare system. Yeah, and oh, and I think sure is. Yeah. this movement is, is, is uh, unveiling the truth of our two-tiered healthcare system in Canada. Yeah. And, and people are noticing. Yeah. People are noticing. Why do doctors get private absence-based treatment, but their patients are being told to be on medications. Yeah. The whole world uh, looks with envy at the Canadian system, but when you're in it and look closely, nine months to get a psychiatrist, yeah. and, you know. Yeah, we got a great system if you break your arm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a great system, but the minute, you know, it has yeah. to do anything yeah. internally or with yeah. your mind, uh, it's a totally different story. Yeah. Totally different story. And so we decided to uh, bring everybody at the table. A lot of people, when they found out that we were doing a conference, they immediately thought it was a pro-abstinence uh, right. treatment uh, yeah. conference. And it's far from it. Yeah. It's far, like I believe in prescription heroin. I believe in yeah. methadone clinics. I yeah. believe in suboxone clinics. I believe yeah. in all of it. But yeah. I, but I, I realize because I was victim of the treatment access where I had to, I was a working guy who couldn't yeah. afford private treatment. Right. And I had to let go of all my assets. I had to qualify for welfare and that yeah. took some time. Yeah. I look back now and I'm like, why did I have to do that? Yeah, that's, that's right. insane. Yeah. You talk about breaking down stigma, but then yeah. you're letting, like why, like I had to apply for welfare. Yeah, the system I'm, works if you have zero money or yeah. uh, an abundance of money. So with building recovery capital, our goal is to expand this conversation across the country. We're in Toronto right now. We yeah. partnered up with some uh, some local people here in Toronto with uh, Bellwood and Edgewood Health Network and some of the other exhibitors that are here. Mm -hmm. In two weeks, I have a meeting with yeah. some people in Calgary. Nice. They are having a conversation about doing a similar conference as yeah. well. 
that's the best compliment when people yeah. want to repeat what you're doing. Yeah, exactly right. And who should go? Like who everybody should directed that. Everybody. Whether you're a member of the recovery community or whether you are uh, a Any, manager. Anybody at that a, deals with employees with yeah, substance use exactly. disorder. Anybody that is a frontline worker. Anybody yeah. that deals with anybody that may have a substance use disorder mm-hmm. needs to come to these conferences and learn about building recovery capital. Yeah. You know, it's it's solutions. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you might be able to take care of somebody's substance use disorder, but if you don't take care of their financial problems, you don't take care yeah. of their um, other issues that are surrounding them, yeah. well, they have a, a less chance at being productive in their recovery. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, that's yeah, it's been all known. A lack of capital. Right? Exactly. And yeah. William White and, and his colleagues and so yeah. forth have done some great papers yeah. on this topic. and. We've actually been building recovery capital all along, mm-hmm. but now it's in a nice phrase, a nice yeah. slogan, yeah. and it's an opportunity for carrying people forward. I mean, that whole idea of meeting people where they're at always mm-hmm. had a second part yeah. and take them to the next level. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and I, I'm sorry, but I don't think as Canadians, we just are okay with people on the streets using drugs. Yeah. I just got back from Portugal, and mm-hmm. we have a trailer of a movie that got released here today, yeah. and the movie will be out next year. Like, everybody talks about the Portuguese model and the Swiss model yeah. and everything. You can't do drugs in those countries, on the streets. Yeah. Like, you get in trouble. Yeah, yeah, Like, the right. idea that you just can go to Portugal and everything's fine. Oh, yeah. you do heroin, yeah, it's, it's, good. it's good with cheese. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. when I went there, I was, I, that's what I was expecting. I was yeah. just expecting, yeah. you know, this, this opportunity for anybody to do anything. Any yeah. other, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. You pull out a crack pipe in Portugal, yeah. anywhere in the city, and you smoke that pipe, yeah. you're in trouble. Yeah. You get looked at, frowned at, yeah. you'll you'll get assaulted by people. Like yeah. I, I talk to a lot of Portuguese people yeah. and I ask them some simple questions. Like if somebody was shooting heroin on that park bench, what would you do? Yeah. And most of them would take the needles out of their hand. That's what they said. Yeah. Wow. And they were as a Portuguese people, yeah. when I told them the Canadians think in Portugal that you can just use drugs wherever you want, yeah. they were really disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think their national pride yeah. was insulted. They yeah, that yeah, was their probably. reactions. Yeah. They're like, well, why would people say that yeah. about us? Yeah, it's like we're pro drugs. Yeah, and, they're know. totally not. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. complete opposite. And yeah. when Canadian advocates for decriminalization talk about the Portuguese model, they're and not talking about the Dissuasion Commission. Yeah. They're not providing all the conversations right. that need to be heard about yeah. Portugal. Yeah. Every expert that we talked to in Portugal, yeah. including the directors that had created the Portuguese model, yeah. said decriminalization would never have worked yeah. if it wasn't for the dissuasion philosophy. Right, exactly. It's but in Canada, we've got our governments are going to decriminalize drugs with no dissuasion yeah. philosophy, no access to treatment. Yeah. It's completely ludicrous. Yeah. And so we're not fighting decriminalization. We're fighting the fact that we're not ready for decrim because we're not doing what Portugal did when it comes to the dissuasion yeah. philosophy and when it comes to treatment access. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like uh, you make gambling more accessible. You have more financial problems. Right? Yeah, exactly. You make mind-altering chemicals yeah. more available. Well, 10, we know 10, 15% of people are going to have a problem with that. Yeah. So, uh, people who want to follow uh, the uh, progress of your film, it was going to be a little trailer now, it's going to be a whole documentary. So, there'll there'll be a Facebook page coming up shortly, but for the time being, they Mm -hmm. can go to the Facebook page, Recovery Capital Conference of Canada, or our Facebook page, Last Door, I Talk Recovery's Facebook page, Um, but eventually there'll be, the movie's called Crisis, and there'll eventually be a Facebook page for it. We're we're a few months away from that. Yeah, okay, great. Okay, keep up the good work. Yeah, we're trying. You bet. Thank you. Well, that's pretty cool, isn't it? So I wanted to talk to you about this this booklet I got. Intergroups have different attitudes about what literature is sacred and what literature is forbidden. This is just something 
written, I'm going to read for you right out of the introduction of the Montreal Intergroups. It's available in English and French. You can order it if you want, www.aa87.org. Find some contact information and say, send me a dry drunkenness booklet. And I don't know what it costs, but it can't be too expensive. It says here, what is dry drunkenness? To find out, we drew up a simple questionnaire that was distributed to all the groups in Area 87. From the answers we received, we selected those that make up this little book, written by and for members of Alcoholics Anonymous. So here's uh, what it says in the introduction. No matter how many years of abstinence we have, old behaviors and old ways of thinking can come back to haunt us. Little by little, resentments, irritability, rage, uh, depression, they reclaim the space that once occupied our lives. What happened? As one of the many authors of this book writes, it's as though the disease was looking for another way, in quotes, to sneak back into our lives. Is this what is meant by the term dry drunkenness? To answer this, we drew up a simple questionnaire in the spring of 2015. Went to all of the groups in Area 87 in Quebec, around the Montreal area. It consists of the following five questions. One, in your own words, what is dry drunkenness? Two, by what physical signs or behaviors do you recognize that you are in a state of dry drunkenness? Three, are there moments or circumstances in which you are more likely to fall into a state of dry drunkenness? What do you do in these same circumstances to avoid the pitfalls of dry drunkenness? Four, is there a graduation in dry drunkenness? Where did it lead you personally? Looking back on your own experience, this is question five. Looking back on your own experience, what are the causes and solutions of dry drunkenness? In all, we received a little over 100 responses coming from French and English-speaking members. The selected stories that make up this booklet, which was published in both languages, were taken from these responses. So there you have it. A <laughs> hundred members. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like uh, how uh, our original literature was written. Are these things cast in stone? They don't have to be. Uh, page uh, 30, there's a quote from As Bill Sees It. Our very first problem is to accept our present circumstances as they are, ourselves as we are, and the people around us as they are. And these are some quotes from some people who wrote in. Everything I've been through, both good and bad, has taught me the importance of daily maintenance. Practicing my morning rituals every day without fail has taught me discipline and gives me tools I need to go through the day with serenity, to admit when I'm wrong, to recognize my shortcomings, and observe my progress. It keeps me grounded in reality and far from daydreaming and fantasizing. Another quote, I try to breathe and be aware of my shift in energy and feeling. I try to notice myself wanting to escape and either I get into it or I just sit with the feeling and trust it will pass. Stop for a moment, someone else says. Breathe. Listen. And other people list, you know, their meditation practices, uh, prayers they uh, say, their use of the serenity prayer. Here's the uh, doctor's opinion. So this is uh, Dr. John Sadler. He's a specialist in the treatment of alcohol and drug dependency. Uh, he's a friend of Alcoholics Anonymous in Quebec uh, and has been since 1983. Uh, we sincerely thank him for contributing to this book. Here are some of his thoughts on the subject of dry drunkenness. To begin with, dry drunkenness is not a medical diagnosis. It's a term that probably originated within Alcoholics Anonymous and is used by some to describe the behavior of certain members who, although abstinent, seem to be under the influence of alcohol. 
Others use the term to describe the behavior of a recently detoxed person who appears agitated and is resentful and bad-tempered. Dry drunkenness occurs when a person who is no longer drinking or using, whether they are in recovery program or not, is thinking and behaving like someone who is still in the midst of active addiction. The thoughts and behaviors they were afflicted with during their active alcoholism are present, yet these thoughts and behaviors are not the result of drinking or of alcohol withdrawal. It often manifests in a person who has quit drinking or taking drugs, but is not in a program of recovery. It can also affect someone who is in recovery, but has come up against roadblocks that, for all kinds of reasons, are holding them back. These individuals oftentimes have not been to rehab or have not integrated in the AA program of recovery. They have not yet grasped that recovery is a process that includes forgiveness of self and others, coming to terms with one's past, mapping out a new value system, learning to open up to others, focusing on opportunities for personal growth, putting an end to blaming, and not wallowing in self-pity. They may begin to isolate, or they may be quite social, yet feel very lonely. Isolating may lead to increased anxiety and trigger a craving for alcohol or another substance in the search for some relief. If they succumb to the craving and drink or indulge in any other substance or behaviors, interesting, I must say, they discover that the relief is short-lived. Their anxiety and cravings will soon return and with a vengeance. If they manage to resist the temptation to drink or use, they will continue to suffer from anxiety and they will feel irritated, aggressive, impatient, impulsive, resentful, remorseful, and fearful. Dry drunkenness can occur after detox or during or after a stay in a rehab. It can also manifest in a person who is not in treatment. It can happen suddenly, triggered by random events, or can stealthily creep up over a number of years. Oftentimes, it is those closest to the alcoholic who are most affected, for denial plays a big role in dry drunkenness, as it does in active addiction. It should be noted that a person who is in denial about their problematic behavior is not lying. Rather, they cannot see the problem. Their suffering may have rendered them powerless to objectively judge their own behaviors, or they may have been in denial for so long that it's become a deeply ingrained pattern of their personality. In some cases, this behavior is an integral part of their personality. For those people, professional help could be extremely beneficial. The first step in helping someone overcome a dry drunk is to let them know in a loving way that they seem to be suffering. Love and acceptance will go a lot further than criticism and negativity. Encourage them to emerge from their isolation and return to AA, to reconnect with members and make new friends. On the road to recovery, there are those who may relapse and those who may go through a dry drunk. In both cases, the sooner they're able to get back on track, the better. So that was March of 2017. Anyone who's complained, uh, why do we have a doctor's opinion from uh, 1930s? Here's a brand new one. Uh, and it's available to you. <laughs> so anyway, uh, thanks for hanging out. We are going to close uh, with a song from Heinz called Soberland. Please, as I mentioned earlier, if you haven't already, you might want to visit AA Agnostica uh, and get this sort of uh, more thought out <laughs> dissertation of uh, who the speakers were, what they talked about, some of my thoughts and observations uh, in a more coherent way, if you prefer that. I 
I know I do. <laughs> Any uh, thoughts, ideas, or suggestions you have about future shows, uh, do let me know. I'm planning a presentation for AA history lovers in the San Francisco area for February. And of course, I'll be in Houston in October, where I'll probably get some more ideas for some more shows. So see you in the rooms. See you online. Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, from Spain, this is Heinz. (laughs) 